Good morning, church. We're going to continue in the reading of the scriptures in the book of Romans. And the chapter is 8, verse 26 to 30. And the Lord is honored when we stand as we read his word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we are out to. But the Spirit himself intercedes for those with growing to deepen words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You may be seated now. Whenever we're studying this scripture, which has been talked about in the mystery box, and Enrique just shared about it as well, when you study a passage of scripture, you need to understand that each book of the Bible is really like a jigsaw puzzle. It's, it's made up of a lot of phrases and verses that interlock with one another, that are tied together like puzzle pieces. And if you take one of those puzzle pieces and you pull it out and you look at that puzzle piece, you might think that you understand where, you know, what that puzzle piece is. You, you look at it and maybe it looks like a flower, maybe it looks like you know, a shoe or whatever that puzzle is. But you really can't discern what it is without its larger context, without the rest of that puzzle. And that's the way it is with the Bible. Every uh, Bible phrase, every Bible verse may at first seem to make sense on its own. But without the context, chances are that you or I will misinterpret that text. Now I want you to take a look at this puzzle um, that we have here on the slide. We do have the slide, right? We don't. I really need that slide, but okay. We don't have the slide. All right. Well, if we had the slide, um, well, we have a picture there, all right? So let's say that that's um, our, our slide, right? Now, if you're putting a, the puzzle together, and that was, you know, the box, that was the, the cover of the box, right? It, you flip over all the pieces, and you would begin to sort them out. You would begin to, to try to, to find the puzzle pieces that fit together, and you would organize them um, by color, by you know, shape, the person uh, that's in that, uh, that, that picture. You would try to, to find those pieces that go together, and you would organize it that way. Well, let's think of the book of Romans as a puzzle. We start with chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And those verses are sort of like that picture. Right? This picture that, that tells you when you start putting those puzzle pieces together what the final is going to be. And Romans 1, verses 1 to 17, tell us where Paul is going in the book of Romans. It gives us the theme and the purpose and the background for the book of Romans. And then, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul discusses total depravity. If you were here during Sunday school, you would have heard about that because Julius was sharing today about total depravity. That is, that all of us are such, uh, have, have such sinful hearts that everything that we do, everything we think, all of, uh, all of our life is tainted by sin. And so 
Paul puts all those thoughts together in one place. And then you have the next section, which is chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 5, verse 1, and that talks about justification. Justification is God's declaration that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are righteous, that our sins are removed, that Christ's death paid the penalty for them, and his resurrection gave to us a new life and a new relationship with God. And then from chapter 5, verse 2, through chapter 8, verse 17, we have another part of the puzzle, and that part of the puzzle is sanctification. Sanctification is the process in which God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in us to transform us, to change us, so that we begin to look more like Jesus Christ. And then the next part of that puzzle is chapter 8, verse 18, through verse 39. And that is glorification. Glorification is that process that is the completion of sanctification. The day that Jesus Christ returns and we are declared to be the full children of God, perfected in him, the true heirs of God, as Paul has been talking about here in chapter 8 so far. And then if we went on from this chapter, we would go on to chapter 9 to 11, And 9 to 11 would be another section in that puzzle about the relationship between the church and Israel. And then chapters 12 through 16, the final part, sort of like the the capstone to it all, is the practical living out of the doctrinal truths that he has taught us from chapter 1 through chapter 11. And so that's the way that a puzzle goes. But if you take a verse out of the midst of that, Chances are that you are going to misinterpret what that is all about. And the reason for that is we need context. We need to see everything in light of how God designed, through Paul, the book of Romans. It would be like taking a piece of the puzzle of the picture and trying to figure out what it meant without all of the rest of the picture there. Our text today is one small section in that larger section on glorification. Verses 26 to 30 are part of a larger section from verse 18 to verse 39. And so to understand the biblical teaching on glorification and what that means for us, we have to see how these puzzle pieces that we call verses, how they fit together. How they join with the surrounding text. And if we look at them closely, we're going to find the main idea or the theme from these verses is this, that God sovereignly orchestrates your life and mine for eternity. God is actively, purposefully, sovereignly orchestrating your life, working in you, not for today, but for eternity. Nothing happens as an accident from God's perspective. We might call things accidents in our lives, But nothing in your life, from God's perspective, is ever an accident. It is part of God's purpose as he works in you. Our life experiences, from the moment of conception until that moment that we either die or Christ returns, every single action and activity in that life is designed by God to prepare you, to prepare me, for eternity. The verses that 
we looked at last week indicate that no matter how much we suffer, no matter how much we groan inwardly, notice we do so for the formation of hope. The formation of the hope of that final glorification when the fullness of our adoption as sons is realized. When we enter into the presence of God for all of eternity. God is forming hope in you and forming hope in me. What does Paul mean by hope? Well, he gives us the understanding of that in verses 24 and 25 that we looked at last week. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees. In other words, the scripture tells us that we are saved by grace through faith in hope. Saved by grace, that is, it's nothing that you deserve, nothing that I deserve. Through faith, that is, a belief in the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that deals with our sins and brings us into a right relationship with God in hope. Looking forward to eternity. Looking forward to the fulfillment of God's purpose at the end of our lives when we are called into his presence for all of eternity. Now the verses that we just looked at, 24 and 25, those verses are part of the initial puzzle pieces on glorification. The promise of eternity. Glorification is what the Christian hopes for. If you're truly a Christian, then you are hoping to see Christ. You are hoping to have the fulfillment of what God has purposed in you brought to reality as he transforms you, as he chase, uh, changes you. Paul describes what that means for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Think about that. No matter how you stretch your brain, we've had 2,000 years, by the way, of history for people to kind of figure out what it's going to be like in heaven. We look at the passages of Scripture and we kind of guess. We get individuals like C.S. Lewis who had tremendous insights into some of these spiritual things. And yet, the Scripture says that no matter how much you imagine, no matter how much you think, no matter how much you study, you haven't even come close to what God has prepared for those who love him. That is incredible. But how do we get from the place of worries and groanings that he talked about last week, how do we get from there to being able to live in hope? By what means do we experience this formation of hope in us? Well, let's take a look at what our text says. Notice that we need to comprehend the molding of prayer. How does prayer mold our lives and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ? Because that is what glorification is all about. When a puzzle piece is examined by itself, as we said before, Without looking at the whole picture, it's really hard to figure out what that puzzle piece really means. And the same is true with the verses of our text. Every single one of these verses has been taken out of context and used by individuals in their teaching. So we look at verse 26. And verse 26 says, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, some 
commentators and, and individuals will say, well, this is Paul instructing us how to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. How are we to pray? We're to pray in the Spirit. He does tell us that in another location, that we are to pray in the Spirit. And, and so they look at this and they say, this is, this is Paul telling us that, that when we pray, we should pray in the Spirit. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. And then there are those who focus on the Spirit interceding for us. And they tell us that it's the Holy Spirit is praying in our place. We don't know how to pray, so he prays for us. And there's truth to that. The Holy Spirit is at work in us, but that's not what Paul is telling us in this passage either. Those are guesses. It's, It's taking a puzzle piece and trying to figure out what that puzzle piece is without looking at the larger area around it. So, how do we understand what this means? Well, look at the very first verse, or very first word of this verse. The very first word of this verse says, likewise. Likewise, uh, other translations say, in the same way. Well, likewise to what? Or in the same way as what? Well, we have to go back to the initial verses in relationship to this, going back to verse 19 to 22, we are told that the creation is groaning in hope, waiting for the glorification, that is, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God who are to to find the fullness of what it means, verse 17, to be heirs of God in eternity. Creation, groaning for that final end of their suffering when Christ comes back and we then are raised up into newness of life for all of eternity. And then verse 23. Verse 23, likewise, reveals that the Christians who have the Holy Spirit are inwardly groaning as we groan, waiting for that final hope that we have, our adoption as children of God, as heirs of God. And all of those discussions, all of those descriptions are just another way of saying waiting for our glorification, waiting for that final day when we are perfected, fully mature, when Christ returns and we enter into the presence of God. So, we come to verse 26, and it begins with the word likewise, or in the same way. And what does that mean? Well, in the same way that creation is groaning, waiting for the redemption, in the midst of its sorrows, in the midst of its suffering, it is groaning, waiting, in hope. The same way that that we as Christians are groaning inwardly, waiting for that hope as we struggle to become like Christ. Well, in the same way, the Holy Spirit, in our weakness, is coming alongside of us and groaning to bring us to become what we are supposed to be. This is not an audible groaning, any more than creation's groaning was audible, or our inward groaning is audible. This groaning is an inward sense of dissatisfaction with the way that things are in our heart and in our life and in this world that is not in line with the purpose of God. And since We know that we are not there yet. There is an inward groaning within us to say, I want to be like God's purpose, his son. I want to live like him. And we are groaning as we move towards that. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is in in us. And he is groaning with that dissatisfaction as well. The Holy Spirit has a responsibility 
of turning our prayers from being self-focused to being Christ-focused. Turning our thoughts and our actions from being God-cursing to God-glorifying. So notice then how we need to comprehend the merging of priorities, our priorities with God's priority. The incredible work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you and in me. As he groans, and because of the fact that, that uh, we are so far from where we should be, and it's like moving a mountain, moving our hearts, moving our thoughts. He's going to move us from our self-centered focus to being a God-centered focus. And so the Holy Spirit is at work doing that in us so that our prayers glorify God. This silent ministry, words not being uttered, inaudible groaning, our text says, as he guides the heirs of God to begin thinking and therefore acting in ways that reflect Jesus Christ so that we become like those who reflect our Father's character. Our prayers early in the Christian life, our prayers are very self-centered, very self-focused. I tend to tell God how unfair our suffering is in our lives. You know, God, I, I gave Jesus my heart. Why do I have to go through this kind of struggle in my life? We thought that God would take away all of our sufferings. That if he loved us, he would let us have everything go well in our lives. But the Holy Spirit, he is at work inside of us, causing us to mature, to grow in our understanding of God's character and God's nature and God's eternal purpose so that our priorities begin to line up with God's priorities. And look at verse 27. Then he who searches the hearts, that's God, he is searching our hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. That is, back to Nick's word earlier, to the worldview. Uh, the Holy Spirit knows, that, that God knows the, the mind or the worldview of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I want you to think about this. What should God's response be to the vast majority of our prayers? Since our prayers tend to be self-centered and self-focused, God's response should not only be no, but God should actually destroy us. You don't believe me? Well, we would just turn our attention to James 4. What's James 4 describes the way that we tend to pray. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. What are you supposed to do with an adulterer? Take him out and stone him. All right? Put him to death. Well, if our prayers are self-centered, self-focused, selfish prayers... James says that makes us an adulterer. We have turned ourselves into our own idols. And how should God then respond to that? He should destroy us. We deserve death. But this verse tells us that when God searches our heart, he hears our words. He hears the selfishness and the self-centeredness of our thoughts. But he searches our hearts and he knows the mind of the Spirit. 
And the Spirit is at work in you and me. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is at work in you and me to cause us to have this groaning, this inward sense of dissatisfaction. We know we shouldn't be self-centered. We know we shouldn't be self-focused. And so he looks past our words, and he looks at what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart and in my heart that's causing that dissatisfaction. And so God's priorities and our priorities are being moved by the Holy Spirit more in line so that we eventually learn how to pray in a way that is less self-focused and less deserving of destruction. The Father searches past our words into the depths of that groaning heart where the Holy Spirit who has redeemed us, the Holy Spirit who has opened our understanding to our desperate need for transformation, And he reveals that we do have that longing. If we are truly Christians, we have that longing to be made like Christ. We are inwardly dissatisfied at our failure to live out the life of Christ and to to think of the way of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit keeps working on that dissatisfaction until as we mature, we begin to see God's glory and desire his glory over ours and that is a glorious thought you became a christian because you realized that you were not in a right relationship with god you became a christian because you realized that you were a rebel against god because your sin was so great that it deserved the outpouring of god's wrath that's why you became a christian in the first place You knew that your heart was wrong. You confessed your sin. As the Holy Spirit awakened your heart to understand those truths. And you desired for God to forgive you of your sin. To change your heart. You came to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to your sinfulness. But also to the greatness of God's grace. And why do we continue to think, to act, and to pray in those ways that still reflect that old character, the old way of thinking? God, make me wealthy. God, take away this sickness and make me healthy. God, Reward me for thinking and acting in ways that are self-centered and self-focused. That's not praying. That's not praying the way that the Holy Spirit wants us to pray. So he is actively in work in us. Taking that groaning of creation and the groaning of our hearts and working through those to mold us so that we begin to think in ways that reflect the fact that we are heirs of God, provided that we suffer with Christ. And so I suggest to you that we learn how to pray. That we ask the Spirit to cause the formulation of hope in us so that we begin to see eternity of far greater value than of the issues and problems that we face in this life. That our prayers begin to reflect that inner longing to be transformed and to be changed so that we can conform our lives to that of Christ. But notice that that change in our prayer life comes when the foundation of our hope is solid. If you have a poor foundation, then you are going to have a poor building. We need a solid foundation. When the mind of the Holy Spirit, the the worldview, the way that the Spirit of God 
views the world, which is the way that God views the world, when that becomes the way that we view the world, then our foundation will be solid. But immature immature Christians tend to think of God more as a Santa Claus. More as as the one who, who, if we go to him, he is going to make us healthy, wealthy, and wise. He's going to bless us and give us all the things that we need in this world. Lots of contemporary preaching raises that kind of thinking, doesn't it? We have our Joel Osteens, we have the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens and the Morris Sorellos and, and others who teach a prosperity gospel that say that God wants you to have all these things. He wants you to be always healthy. He wants you to, be, to, to have wealth. He wants you to do all those kinds of things while you're living here on earth. But contrast that with verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. Well, what is it that we're hoping for? Are we hoping for the pleasures of this life that are but for a season? Or are we hoping for those things that are eternal? Are we hoping to be with Christ for all of eternity? Are we hoping to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in this life through the suffering and the groaning that it takes in order for us to truly reflect what it means to be the heir of God? To be the one who, with Jesus Christ, will inherit eternal life. A poor theological foundation will lead to a poor result in our prayer life, and then in our actions. But notice instead, we need to comprehend that we are ministers of passion. In other words, what is it that you love? Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, they loved the passion fruit. And look where that led. Sin, And death through sin, we found in Romans chapter 5. Those who are true heirs of God, who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, instead of loving what this world loves, become passionate for God and his glory. We see that in verse 28. And we know that for those who do what? For those who love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. Two phrases in that verse that describe the ones that he's talking about. He's talking about the heirs. He's talking about the ones who the Holy Spirit is working in so that we begin to think and pray in ways that say, God, whatever it takes for me to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, work that in me. Earlier in Romans 7, in the first 11 verses of Romans 8, there is a very powerful contrast between those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the Spirit. Instead of loving the world, which is what living according to the flesh is all about, living according to the Spirit is living in hope that we will be with Christ, conformed to his image, living out that life now and on into eternity. To be passionate for the flesh means you want to be comfortable in this flesh. Anything that makes life hard, any suffering that comes into your life in this world, any injustice that you feel that you have experienced, any time you don't get what you want, gives you a victim mentality. Life shouldn't be this way. I deserve better. I deserve more. That's living in the flesh. But those who have the Spirit of Christ put to death 
the deeds of the flesh. Those who have the Holy Spirit within are willing to suffer persecution. They're willing to go through hardships in this life. They're willing to face temptation and they will win because they love God and they live for his purpose. Their love for God makes them want God's purpose above their own desires. They pray with Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. They really mean it when they pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done in me as it is in heaven. And so I ask you, are you a minister of passion who loves God more than you love yourself? Who loves God so that God's purpose can be worked out in your life and in the lives of those around you? If so, notice that we need to comprehend the mystery of perseverance. You see, the the whole passage from verse 17 through verse 27, up until this verse that we're looking at, has taught us about persevering through suffering. That that is part of the process of becoming an heir of God. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. That's a key understanding of this whole passage. If you want to be glorified with him, you must suffer with him. And then we come to this well-known verse 28. And it continues that teaching when it reminds us that we know that all things work together for good. Two questions should come to mind immediately when you look at, at those words. The first one is, what does all things mean? And second, what does for good mean? Well, if we take it out of its context, we can, we, we can find all kinds of things that it can mean. It might mean that everything in this life is meant to make our lives better. So we should try to have better things in this life. We should try to get a better job, live in a nicer house, have a nicer car, be healthy, all of those kinds of things. And for good, then, what would that mean? It would mean that as we try to have a better life in this world, that God will make sure that it happens, that we have a better life, that we are healthy, wealthy, and wise. But that's the exact opposite of what this passage is teaching. All things here means all the things that we've discussed in verses 17 through verse 27. That all the suffering that a Christian endures They endure it for the sake of becoming an heir so that God's glory, his purpose, might be fulfilled in their lives. For those who are passionately loving God, for those who seek his eternal purpose above everything else, they know that God only allows into our lives those things that are working to fulfill that purpose. That means that we endure suffering for the glory of God. It means that we live in this world and say, God, whatever it takes for me to line up with your purpose, I will accept it. And I will give you thanks for it. I will glory in suffering because I know that in that suffering, It produces endurance. Endurance for what? Endurance for the purpose of the glory of God. It produces, endurance produces character. What kind of character? The character that says, I want to reflect the glory of Christ in me. For what purpose? Hope. Hope. We've studied that back in chapter 6. And now we see it coming to fruition here. So what does all things mean? 
all the things that God brings into your life to conform you to the image of his son. For good, then, cannot mean for our good feelings here on earth. Instead, it means for the good of God's eternal purpose in us, even if it means hardship and suffering, or even persecution, or death here on this earth. Christians who have the Holy Spirit understand the mystery of suffering for the purpose of persevering until the end, until that suffering has brought forth what God has purposed for it in our lives so that we can be conformed to the image of His Son and we can live for God's glory. Verse 31 on through verse 39 is going to tell us about that suffering and how it works out in our lives. We'll be looking at that for the next two weeks if the Lord wills. But having this kind of worldview not only changes then how we pray, that's verses 26 and 27, it will transform our prayer life, but it also forms the foundation of this hope as we know that God is working all things so that that hope of being heirs of God will be fulfilled ultimately for his glory and for our good. We realize that the Holy Spirit works the formulation of our hope and that our trust in God's character and his eternal purpose provides the foundation for our hope. But now Paul wants us to understand the framework of our hope. How can we come to the place where we accept and live out this grand salvation with a hope that endures no matter what we suffer? Is this something that we must do to be accepted by God in order to become an heir of God? In other words, do we have to prove that we are worthy of becoming an heir of God? Paul destroys any thought like that, with the first five words in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. Here's a tremendous guarantee. You see, God knew before the formation of this world those who would be his heirs. Not based upon anything that you have done, are doing, or will do. Some translate this as God for loved. And I don't have a problem with that translation, but I think that it means more than that. The wonderful guarantee here is not just that God loved us as awesome as that is. And as John says in 1 John 3, God lavished his love on us. Tremendous thought. But what this is saying is that God knew his elect by name, by purpose, and in love from eternity past until eternity future. So notice that we need to comprehend the magnificence of predestination as it's described for us there in verse 29. God did not know by looking down into the future to see who would believe. That would be post-knowledge, not foreknowledge. No, God knew those that he would predestine to be saved as verse 29 decrees. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The Bible has as much to teach about predestination, about his electing, about his choosing, and someday perhaps uh, we'll hit Ephesians 1 and, and, and we'll walk through the beauty of that thought. But the emphasis in this passage is here to assure us that being an heir of God is not dependent upon how you live, but upon God's foreknowledge of you, his predestining you. Predestining you for what? That you would be conformed to the image of his son. He has designed it. He has orchestrated your life for that purpose. 
If clay had feelings, it might complain about the pressure that the, the potter is putting on it, the suffering that it has to go to to be shaped into the form that the potter wants. If it is marble, it might speak out. If you start taking a hammer and a chisel and you start chiseling this into the shape that you want it to be. If it could speak, it would cry out and it would complain about what it has to suffer in order to be sculpted into the image. Well, that is what God is doing. And when you get ready to cry out, when you get ready to complain, the Spirit shows you how it is God who is working through this for your eternal good. So your prayers change from grumbling to glorifying. And that is the magnificence of predestination as God works in you because He ordained you from the beginning to be His child, to be His heir. Notice, therefore, we need then to comprehend the means of the purpose as God works it out in us How does this magnificent predestination come to reality in those whom he foreknew? By what theologians often call the golden chain of redemption or of salvation. We find it in verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is this saying? It is saying that God sovereignly purposed from eternity those that he would save. And he calls them irresistibly by the power of the Holy Spirit to faith. He sovereignly declares that they are righteous based upon the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And by the resurrection, power brought them to new life. And he sovereignly works to bring them to that glorious perfection of Jesus Christ through sanctification. But some have noticed that the word sanctification is not in this. This golden chain doesn't have sanctification in it. But it is here. For verses 18 to 28 are teaching us the process of sanctification. Glorification is the culmination of sanctification. God is using our suffering to conform us to the image of His Son. And verse 28 sums it all up by telling us that all things happening in our life, the creation groaning, our inward groaning, the Holy Spirit interceding with groans of words that cannot be uttered, all of that working to conform us to the image of His Son that we might be heirs of God. God is sovereignly orchestrating your life and mine for eternity. So that all things in your life work for his eternal purpose in you and in me. And so in conclusion, I want to end with three questions for you. First, is the Holy Spirit steering your desires? We start self-centered and self-focused, but do you sense that the Holy Spirit is causing a dissatisfaction within you to cause you to see that your self-centered, self-focused thinking is not in line with God's eternal purpose? So he begins to transform and change those desires within you. Second, is Christ's likeness your passion? Do you want to be like Christ more than you want anything else in your life? And third, is God glorifying your goal? The reason that you live, the reason that you move, Is it to glorify God? Those three questions will answer whether or not you're in the faith. Whether or not the Holy Spirit is actively working in you. So that you view suffering differently than you did before. 
And you begin to change what your desires are. I become less dissatisfied with my life situation when I see that what God is doing is making me an heir of his for all of eternity. Who cares if I live in a one-room apartment in Brooklyn, New York for a few years when I have eternity with God in spaceless heaven. Our view of life changes. Is the Holy Spirit working that in you today? Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts. Help us to see, Father, that you are sovereignly at work in us, changing the way that we think, so that eternity becomes our goal, becomes the reason for our existence, becomes our passion and our love, that you might be glorified in us now and then through all of eternity by forming us as heirs of God and fellow heirs with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we could shout that from the housetops, that we could join with all of the angelic hosts in heaven, that you would give us a thousand voices, 10,000 voices, a hundred thousand, millions of voices that we read in Revelation 7, innumerable voices to shout out your praise and your glory as you make us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It is for your glory and praise that we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing together, O four thousand tongues to sing, a great Redeemer's praise.